Yo, what's up, everyone? We are revisiting the topic of hell again, and today's guest is Sharon Baker. Um, but her new last name is Sharon Putt. Is that how you pronounce it? Or Putts? Putt. Putt, okay. So Sharon Baker is an associate professor of theology and religion and the author of Raising Hell, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About God's Wrath, and Executing God, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About Salvation and the Cross, as well as numerous articles on hell and nonviolent atonement. And so Sharon, it's good to have you on the show. It's good to be here. You know, I remember when I first heard you in an interview several years ago, and I was like, I really like this lady, you know, because not only did you share some pretty insightful things as a scholar, but there was this, um, like an authenticity, you know, and, and love coming through your voice. And, and at the time, I was still living in the Philippines and questioning the whole idea of hell. But the resources over there, to be honest, they were pretty limited. But, you know, you went out of your way and you shipped your book, Raising Hell, all the way to the Philippines <laughs> just for me. Honestly, that, that caught me by surprise because that was really nice of you to do. And you even had a little note inside. I was like, man, <laughs> she really is nice, you know. <laughs> and so seriously, I don't take things like that for granted, you know, because your book was, was definitely part of my journey. And I'm glad that, you know, we... I'm just so grateful we were able to communicate a little bit here and there through email when I got to the States and had you endorse uh, my first book, which I'm honored to say. And so now here we are. And so, you know, a few weeks ago, I, I posted a podcast that I did on Hell on Facebook, and I got some really interesting reactions from people. Um, that was an interview that I did with Kevin Miller. But, but let me read what one person said. And this person, okay. quote, Joshua, this is very serious. I openly rebuke you in Jesus' name. <laughs> Hell and the lake of fire is real. Why do you people listen to him? Jesus Christ is our master. I'm sure you've got good intentions, but Jesus died on the cross to save us from hell. If there is no hell, then the gospel makes no sense. Then we skip a couple of his sentences, and he says, Do you not fear God? I love you dearly, brothers and sisters in the Lord. I plead with you not to fall away from the faith. And then he goes on and on and on. End quote. So obviously... Hell, this is a pretty hot topic, and, and maybe we could even address a couple of things that this person who openly rebuked me said. And uh, But before that, just as I do with every guest I have on the show for the first time, I'd like for you to share your, your story with my listeners, Sharon, and your journey and how your faith has evolved throughout the years and where, you, where you're at now. Okay. Um, you know, I think I read that. Facebook post. Oh, you did? <laughs> I think I did and and thought at the time, oh my gosh, where do you start? <laughs> right, right, right. Answering something like that. Yeah. But anyway, my personal journey, um, I didn't become a Christian until I was older mm. and had one child. He was like nine months old. I've had four sons, so. Okay. Um, but hell was something that kind of scared me into the kingdom at the time and it made a lot of sense as did the penal substitutionary theory of atonement which as you know if you've read executing god is yeah. something that i refute nowadays um, mm. because of the image of, of god it portrays but i i started as soon as i became a christian digging deeply into the bible and my tradition was southern baptist okay. pretty much fundamentalist southern baptist where you know they they lived in the realm of absolute certainty and didn't really need a whole lot of faith when it came to what they believed and what I believed. Hmm. I was right there with them. 
But after a move to Texas, the kids going back to school, I decided to go to seminary and just take a couple of classes. So I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and that's when my world began to fall apart theologically. So I ended up tearing down everything I thought I knew with absolute certainty and rebuilding again on the basis of faith, <clears throat> knowing that we're not going to have certainty about our beliefs. That's where faith comes from. And one of the things that I began to deconstruct were theories of um, atonement because of the image of God it portrayed. God is an angry tyrant needing someone to take the hit for sin. And then um, the next topic, of course, I, I tackled was the question of hell. How could a God who is love, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, who does not wish for any to perish, as we read in Scripture, um, how could that God actually send people to eternal conscious torment uh, with no hope for redemption just because of a temporal life of sin? Mm. How could a forgiving God with the power to redeem um, allow that to happen? And so that began my journey through hell, <laughs> uh, writing the book and the next book on executing God. And another one of my concerns began to be the um, violence that Christians have done historically, still do today, the spiritual terrorism that takes place in churches and in mm. um, counseling sessions with pastors and in families. And how can we change our perspective of God, our image of God? How can we see God as more loving and redeeming and compassionate um, so that our own violence can't be justified by how we view God as a violent God. So I'm working on a, a God who's against violence yeah. and all for peace and justice and reconciliation, restoration of relationship. Yeah, yeah. So, so your view of God now, obviously when I read through your books and I hear some of your interviews, you, you do talk about this God of, of love and restoration and peace and nonviolence, and you became a Christian um, in your later years, but what were you before that? I was... Were you um, an atheist, or were you just not really into religion at the time, but you believed no, in God? I I knew I was not an atheist. Okay. I was um, brought up in the church, kind of, through okay. fourth grade, at least. And then off and on, we'd go to the Baptist church in town. My mother belonged to church, and she was a, a devout Christian. Okay. But I never really knew what to do with Jesus. Nobody ever told me, even though I had been in church off and on all of my life. I didn't know what a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago had to do with me right now today. No one ever explained. Right, right. <laughs> so when right, it was right. finally explained to me, it made a lot of sense. Hmm. I remember one time I was probably 19 years old, and I was kind of wild, lived, hmm. lived the wild life, um, and sat in my car at a red light and did what my mother told me I needed to do, and that was ask Jesus into my life and ask him to be my savior too. Mm. I did that sitting at this traffic <laughs> and nothing happened. Nothing. I didn't see stars. The heavens didn't open and trumpets sound from above. I didn't right. hear angels singing, and I thought God had said, you're too bad. Oh. I, I don't want you. you got to get a little bit better first. And so it was when I was 26 years old, someone finally explained it to me that it's the bad people that God really does want. 
And that's what uh, reconciliation, redemption is all about. And so then I um, really became a Christian. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So let, let's get into this topic of hell then. So is hell found in the Bible? Because you, you'll hear a lot of different people say different things because some will say yes it is and other people will say no it's not. Uh, so which is it? <laughs> well, of course, I can see how people would say it's found in the Bible. Our tradition has taught us that. Dante is the one who really, I think, messed us up there. But right. um, there is no word uh, hell in the Bible, mostly because the Bible wasn't written in English, and mm -hmm. hell is an English word. But when you trace back the history of hell, I really don't think you find it there. You find some Greek ideas about um, Hades. You find metaphorical references to the Valley of Gehenna, um, or the Hinnon Valley outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And that's what we have Jesus talk about um, in, mm. in the Gospels, which is those occurrences of the word Gehenna are more frequent than any of the other occurrences of Hades or Tartarus. Yeah. But we don't have this idea, I don't think, of course it's all hermeneutical issues, right? Right. Um, of a place of eternal conscious torment. That didn't develop until much later in the tradition. Okay. So that's big though, because I mean when you think about it, a lot of people today, their, their picture of hell is is people being tortured by demons and burning in flames and, and screaming right. in pain. So <clears throat> did it just come from Dante's Inferno or, or how did it develop over time though? Well, there's a lot of different answers to that question. Yeah. It, it developed as the Christian imagination developed. Right. Uh, I think it was a marketing strategy for the most part, but mm. it also was made extremely popular by Dante, even though it didn't start there. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then it just, you know, we kept building upon right, these ideas. Right. And in Greek thought, it actually it actually started to become more of a a place of punishment um, than it okay. had during the time of Jesus. So it began to change a little by little over time. And then, you know, like I said, I think Dante was the one that made it very popular. Okay, so we kind of like read that imagery that Dante gave us into the Bible and when, when people read it. I guess you could say that? Well, probably more our more in our more contemporary culture, yes. But during the time yeah. of Dante, he got it from somewhere, right? Right, right. And so he got it from those traditions that that some scholars say they came from the um, Persian tradition. Some scholars say it came from the Greek right. culture where these ideas of life after death eventually um, moved into the realm of punishment after death. Mm -hmm. So it was a slow development. Okay. So, I mean, was there any formal doctrine of hell, you know, in the early church? No. There wasn't? No. In okay. fact, the early church, early, early church focused more on um, paradise hmm. than anything else. I mean, so what, what does fire symbolize in the Bible, right? If it's not about like like people being burned and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, what does that symbolize, especially when the Bible talks about the lake of fire? Right. Well, and that's interesting, at least it was to me, which really began my, um, in my head, my ideas to write on hell is I did a study of fire in scripture. Mm. And so went 
throughout the whole Bible and read all of the verses that, that deal with fire, especially fire as it surrounds God or comes from God. And I found uh, some interesting little tidbits in that study, and, and some of those are that, first of all, if it's God's fire or fire from God, and we hear, we read in Scripture that God is actually a consuming fire, Right. So the fire itself is part of what is God and God's presence, like the Shekinah glory. Right. Um, but that fire only burns up what is wicked. Huh. You see this all throughout the um, Old Testament, and then as you get into the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians. But it burns up what's wicked and unrighteous and leaves behind the pure and the righteous. doesn't touch that. You see um, that... that God's people will walk through the fire. They will not be burned. They will walk through flames and not be scorched. Um, the fire doesn't touch them because they're God's righteous people. Yeah. Yet it burns up dross and chaff and wickedness. And then we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that every person builds a on a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Mm. And we build with wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. And every person's work will become evident in that day and those whose work remains after it's tested and it's tested with fire we see that also in first peter chapter one um will will earn a reward and those whose work is burnt up shall suffer loss and then the verse goes on to say he himself will be saved yet so as through fire and so you've got this idea of the fire of God, God's fiery presence, burning up everything that's unrighteous and leaving behind everything that's righteous and pure. So it's a purifying fire, a purging fire. Hmm. Um, I'd like to think it's the fire that is God's love, hmm. that, that burning love that um, consumes everything that in, in its path that is unrighteous, making... A person fully righteous after standing in the power and the um, the burning love of that flame. Of course, so, it's all metaphorical, right? Yeah, We're, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a positive thing in your understanding, right? Because usually people think it's a it's a bad thing, and you're going to be burning right. in hell. I mean, that's the language we use, right? People will burn in hell for forever, and so right. you're saying that it's it's not getting rid of wicked people in a sense of burning them, but but getting rid of the wickedness i guess right. in people's lives and and purifying right. them in that sense but and some would experience that as wrath right and yeah and that's yeah. a whole way to like see two different perspectives on that right that's right well wow. if your wickedness is burning burning off i guess that's kind of hellacious yeah or you at least i use the story of Otto in the book but um it's actually the fire of this all-consuming love that you experience at first as wrath of it as it burns away the wickedness, and then you realize that it's actually um, all-consuming love. Right. So you know, some some critics of mine say that there's no way around it, though. So even though like you're you're talking about this fire that that purifies us for the better, you know, but they'll say the Bible clearly says that there is eternal punishment for unbelievers. So just to play the devil's advocate here, doesn't the word eternal mean forever? In, you know, referring to punishment. Right. Actually, no. 
that's how we in our tradition, at least in my tradition, have always interpreted those words in both the Hebrew and the Greek. But um, they don't necessarily and most often actually don't mean forever and ever and ever and ever without end. Hmm. Um, for instance, uh, olam is the Hebrew word. Jonah was in the belly of the big fish forever. Right, right. And we know that it was only three days. Yeah. And so we we see these words and translate them, interpret them, translate them into English, and they take on the meaning that we have in our contemporary culture, not really thinking about what it could have meant back when these words were actually written and communicated to the people. Um, but it's it's a it's a period of time, and uh, we could say I guess it felt like Jonah was in the belly of the big fish forever. Right, felt like right. uh, but it doesn't. It just means a period of time. It does not mean eternal as it's used in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Huh. Uh, there are exceptions to that, of course. Right, but, right. Uh, wow. Yeah, because that that'll like. Uh change a lot of things for people you know because it, it's kind of like a hermeneutical thing where okay the the bible translations that we have say this but and this is how we read it through our lens because of our you know contemporary understanding of this word so that kind of like confuses a lot of people right unless we dig deeper and understand the original meanings of it you know because when i see the word eternal in the bible i'll think that's forever <laughs> right you know so that that's why it's so confusing for a lot of christians growing up where this is just the way we understand it so you know we don't have the training to to dig deeper into these things and you know so now now one of the things that comes up though is like obviously christians give jesus's words a lot of weight but didn't jesus talk about hell more than heaven as a lot of people say um because that's very common even like some scholars say that in some of their blogs and i'm like yeah you know so how do you argue against that well, I think one of the ways to argue against it is to read the Bible um, <laughs> and take note of how often Jesus mentions another kind of life, which we automatically assign to heaven, right? right. I don't personally, right. um, although I'm not denying an afterlife after this body dies, but right. at the same time, Jesus talked more about how to live life on earth. Right. He wasn't talking about hell, and he most often, most of the times, was not talking about heaven. He was talking about life right now. Salvation is for today. Hmm. Um, it's now. Now is the time um, of salvation where we are to live lives that are on the narrow path of the righteous teachings of Jesus, yeah. the path of love that leads to the Father, the path where we're taking care of widows and orphans and we're uh, helping the needy and giving rest to the weary and you know healing the wounded um, in in every sense of that term um, right right so salvation is something that we do now it's a transformation that takes place through the spirit that that is at work now in the world, transforming the world for the glory of God and the furtherance of God's kingdom. And I think Jesus spent more, most of his time talking about that. Okay. And our tradition has come back and, and said, well, here he's talking about heaven, when he may have been talking about how to live a transformed life on earth. Here he's talking about 
hell where he may have been saying, if we don't live this transformed life, this is what our lives are going to look like. And we've interpreted okay. that as hell, eternity. Okay. So what you're saying is those passages that, that seem to appear that he's talking about an afterlife of, of an eternal hell, he's actually referring to something that was happening at that time. Right. Like possibly a destruction or something like that. So you think a he would be referring yeah. Of, of Jerusalem? A destructive way of life. Okay, a destructive way of life. Okay. You know, so um, you wrote a book called Executing God, you know, which thank you for, for sending that to me too. <laughs> you know, um, and which is about Jesus' death on the cross. You know, can there be a, any, do you see a kind of connection between a person's understanding of what happened on the cross and their understanding of hell? Like, like in other words, does one particular doctrine lead to another? You know what I'm saying? It did for me. I don't know if it would for other people, but so if how, I how about by, for you? How, how did that yeah. work out for you? And and I think if I go by the emails and notes that I've received from people, it it naturally leads from atonement to hell. Although I wrote them backwards. Um, okay. For others also. But if we think about Jesus on the cross as uh, some sort of satisfaction or penalty that Jesus paid back to God right. and if we don't grasp onto that then we go to hell I think that's how those two things are connected we either receive that gift or and end up in heaven right. or we don't and we end up in hell and so I think they're very much connected yeah yeah because for me that was like a big game changer for me when I started questioning the cross you know so once I got rid of the whole idea of the penal substitutionary theory of God punishing his son and all that oh. stuff. Once I started to get rid of that understanding, that's when I started to get con confused about hell. <laughs> so that was, I, yeah. that was for me, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, um, well, let's go back to that, that Facebook comment that I read earlier. Did, yes. did Jesus die to save people from hell? Yes. In what sense? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> I think, um, you know, my life before Christ was hell. Okay. And I know there's eyes rolling right now from people who, who believe in an eternal conscious torment. But, right. you know, if they're listening to this, mm. probably wouldn't be. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we're preaching to the choir. <laughs> Well, we got some atheists on, you know, listeners. So, you know, a lot of the times I like discussing things like this because one of the reasons why people become atheists is because of this version of God exactly. that they reject, right? That's exactly it, which is one of the reasons I wrote both of these books to right. reach people like my aunt, for instance, um, who just could not believe in a God who would treat people this way if God was love, is right. love. Right. Anyway... I, I think Jesus died on the cross for a number of reasons, and and one of those reasons does not include to keep us out of hell, other than the hell that this life produces when we live unrighteous lives, hmm. or lives not in intimate relationship with God through Christ. Okay. Uh, but, you know, you know the moral example theory. He died yeah. to show us, to reveal to us the extent God will go to in order to reach out to reconcile people to God's self, um, to give us this example of this um, extravagant, overabundant, limitless love. 
uh, I, on the cross, when Jesus, as the representative of all humanity, which we read about in Romans chapter 5, we see Jesus praying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we see Jesus forgiving people even well before that in the Gospels. But I would, I, I like to think that, that if God answers the prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous person, which we read about at the end of the book of James, then that's a prayer that God would answer. Mm -hmm. That that prayer revealed to us that God has already forgiven us our sin mm -hmm. and and reconciliation awaits, right? Because that takes two parties. Forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation takes two right, more. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that forgiveness is there for all people, everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're and, saying that God has forgiven everyone already? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because we in Second Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 19. I can't always get my verse addresses right. That's <laughs> okay. Um, it, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mm -hmm. And then the next phrase tells you how God did that by not counting their transgressions against them. Pure out and out forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, and this is what salvation is for, he has committed to us that word of reconciliation. We are now ambassadors for Christ spreading that word of reconciliation, co-partners with God and transforming the world with the love of God um, and the furtherance of God's kingdom. If the church would really do its job showing love, um, following the teachings of Jesus by taking care of the needy, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the excise, the outcast, we probably would not have poverty Hmm. The world would be a completely different place than it is today. But the church has tapped into this post-Constantinian militaristic mentality um, that I think is, is born through this notion of a violent God mm -hmm. who must have someone take the hit for mm -hmm. sin. Mm -hmm. So my question would be, like, what, what was the relationship... Because like I was even asking this to Brad Jersak when he was on the show, and I was asking him, you know, does when you think of you know, because he always talks about we need to look to Jesus, we need to look to Jesus. But there, are, but I was also mentioning to him about there are people who live lives who live lives well, and they don't even think about that at all. You know, they don't think about the cross. They're kind of right. or, or people who have even left religion, and mm -hmm. you know, none of that stuff's even relevant to them. So I was asking him, you know, does that? Is is a story of, of talking about Jesus on the cross, is it just a story to be inspired by? Like like you hear about someone back in the day who laid down his life and gave up his life, but like, wow, that's that touches you. So in that sense, it could inspire. Or was there like some sort of, as I was even asking Brad, like a like a metaphysical like something happened, you know, so so you were using words like reconciliation and stuff like that, but was does that mean that there was something wrong with God and humanity before Jesus died? You get what I'm saying? I do. And I think, you know, one of your, I, maybe I'm hearing it as a concern of yours about the metaphysical, something that on a universal, concrete, right. objective level happened, the universe somehow changed after yeah. Jesus died on the cross. Yeah. And because, uh, maybe because I was, I've been an evangelical sort of conservative Christian 
most of my Christian life, I still have to hold on to that. Okay. I I'm also a Christian universalist, however, okay. um, where I think the power of God and the love of God and the effectiveness, the efficacy of what Jesus lived and died and taught um, is powerful enough to save all humanity and actually all creation. I like to include the entire universe. Sure. And, um, but one of the one of the the concrete things that I think actually changed in the universe uh, when Jesus rose from the dead is a theory that Irenaeus back in the second century um, wrote about, and that is recapitulation. Mm. We see that in Romans five, where the first through the first Adam sin came into the world mm -hmm. yet through the second adam who is jesus who was fully human the way god created humans to be mm -hmm. in their very goodness um, through that righteous second adam and i'm doing scare quotes with my fingers <laughs> you know you can't see that no, 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 no. i have an uh, idea by the way you're saying it though <laughs> yeah okay through <laughs> Through that representative for all humanity, the human done over the way God wanted humans to be, and that's what recapitulation means, a, the, mm. God's great do-over, um, humanity was done over again. Mm. And we are taken up into that. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1, right, that we're actually taken up into um, Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. We're taken up into that do-over. Mm-hmm. And, and seen and considered righteous. Um, now, that righteousness doesn't meet its fulfillment until we stand in that all-consuming fire of love that is God. Um, mm. But at the same time, I think that, that, that through Jesus, God redid the human condition, and we are taken up into that. Right, right. So, you know, the way I hear you is like your, your message it sounds like a very encouraging one if it's talking about us being taken up into the life of God and, and mm -hmm. this, um, this purifying kind of love. So if, if that's the case, because that sounds nice, right? But why, why do so many Christians want to believe in hell, though? You know, it's like they got to defend it all the time, you know? I know. Well, it's... And I, I think that, you know, people get more upset over taking hell away or saying God saves everybody than they do if people aren't Christians at all. Hmm. They're more upset over the thought of universal salvation through Christ <laughs> yeah. than they are over two-thirds of the world's population yeah. that ever lived and ever will live burning an eternal conscious torment and put there right. because they rejected the God who supposedly loves them. Right, right. Um, you know, and I've had students, one student came to me and said, you know, I was talking to my grandmother about the different views of hell, and I think that she would rather I not be a Christian than she would be not believing in hell. Oh, wow. And I, it's something we've always believed. I think that it satisfies our human sense of justice, not divine sense of justice, sure. but our human sense of justice where... You know, you've got to get what's coming to you as long as you're not the one getting what's coming to you. Right, right. 
but everybody else needs to. So, you know, there's all these psychological reasons why <laughs> hell is a comfort to those who think they're not going there. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what kind of God would that be, though, for, like, if a person does believe in a God who sends someone to hell for forever, right? Not even millions or billions, but forever, you know, what, what kind of God, in your opinion, would that be? That would be um, a split personality God with despotic, tyrannical tendencies. Um, mm. You know, have you interviewed Michael Harden? Oh, not yet. Okay, he's someone you may want to do that. He's yeah. he um, is the founder of Preaching Peace, and he's written some books. He's really pretty good. Anyway, right, right. he tells this story, and I tell it over again in Executing God. I think where it's it's this man who's incredibly in love with this woman, and he says to her, "Just unite with me, bond with me, marry me, and I will love you all the days of your life unconditionally. I don't care what you do, what you look like, what you say. I will provide you with every treasure you'd ever want or ever could even think to ask for. I will protect you and guard you and keep you. You will be mine. I will be yours, and we will just have this wonderful love relationship. But if you turn me down, <laughs> I am going to make your life miserable for all eternity, and I'll make you wish you had never lived, and I'll <laughs> curse the ground you walk on. You know, you get the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the kind of God that we project when we talk about a God who loves you so much he's sent Jesus to, to save you from your sin. But boy, right, if you right. reject him, you are screwed royally. <laughs> right, right. So... So, okay, so let's just say it, that doesn't make sense, at least for me and for you, that doesn't make sense, right? But right. then there are people who will say, all right, let's 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 not get the not-so-bad people, you know, in hell. But what about the, the Hitlers and the Stalins and Osama bin Laden? Don't they, quote-unquote, deserve to go to hell, like an eternal hell because of all the things that they've done? Well, I guess we all deserve hell but that's the nature of love you love even though people deserve something differently and I'm one of those who thinks that even Hitler at the end can stand before God and be purified and redeemed and reconciled and restored mm. Origen you know the old dead guy theologian <laughs> yeah. I guess the first some people think he's the first theologian of the church actually believe the devil himself will be saved in the end. Right, right. Because God's love and power is so extravagantly um, incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I like how, you know, in your book you talked about there were several problems. You call them, you call them troubles surrounding the traditional view of hell, like the theodicy mm -hmm. and hopelessness, etc. You know, Obviously, there's a lot of evil that goes on all around the world every day, every single day, whether they're like to the degree of Hitler and all those things or not. But, but supposedly for a lot of Christians, hell is the ultimate answer to solve the problem, though. Right. You know, I mean, because you're getting rid of you're getting rid of the bad people. You know, so so in your understanding, why doesn't an eternal hell solve the problem of evil? It it keeps it going forever somewhere will evil will always be it'll always exist hmm. um, it'll never be taken care of and the question is how do you change the world and get rid of evil and I think the answer is God's answer 
um, I think God's answer is you redeem it and transform hmm. it. And, you know, when you, th I'm thinking back on that Facebook um, post yeah. where the person was questioning why bother living a good life at all. I don't remember the exact words. Mm -hmm. If there is no hell, why be a Christian at all? <laughs> and that is so sad. Yeah, yeah. It says a lot about like their motivation. It, yeah, <laughs> it's such a sad question because the reason we embrace reconciliation with God and that intimate relationship is not to get out of hell free. Yeah. It's to transform the world. It's to redeem um, the evil somehow, to um, obliterate it through the love of God in Christ that we show to the world yeah. uh, through grace and mercy and kindness and generosity and you know all those things that the Bible yeah. tells yeah uh, and then evil's done away with it's gone hmm. it doesn't exist forever someplace um, and you know there's these old church theologians way back um, centuries ago who actually thought that God with Christians in heaven would have a better time in heaven because we'd be able to look down at all those people burning <laughs> in hell forever right right and that's just I can't even believe someone even put that in writing way back then, <laughs> but they did. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, so so how do you how do you respond to someone, you know, who says, "Yes, Sharon, God is love, but don't forget, He's also a God of wrath." You know, so you mentioned that word wrath earlier, but yeah. but the Bible seems to say that there is this wrath that goes on. So what is wrath then, in your understanding? Yeah, wrath, I think, is our projection of how God feels. Um, you know, it, we're, we're called children of wrath in Scripture. Mm. And that wrath might just be not God's wrath, but our own. Okay. We are children of wrath because we have made that... Um, our lifestyle of violence and um, nastiness. I'm groping for words here because I can't come up with, with the right ones, which is always a problem, right? right? Especially right. when you're writing. <laughs> no. Um, but we are the ones who suffer our own wrath through the evil okay. that we do. And the wrath of God we experience is wrath because that's, that's the peace in us that's unrighteous that that anything that goes against our own personal and selfish desires could be experienced as wrath or we project that onto God when really the wrath that we think we are feeling or comes from God is um, God's fire, God's yeah. consuming love. And I talk about it better in Raising right. Hell, especially with the story of Otto. Mm -hmm. who would experience that purifying fire as the wrath of God. Right, right. And wrath is talked about also in the Old Testament. God's wrath and all these wars happen and people, whole, whole races of people are wiped out supposedly by God. Yeah. Um, and I, I think because Scripture is a fully human, fully divine book, I have a very high view of Scripture actually as authoritative and inspired by God. Mm-hmm. But, but, there's a human element. Human beings wrote it. Human beings in right. a context within their own culture. Uh, and those things 
could not help but be written into the text. And yeah. people in those days thought everything came from the hand of God, good and bad, wars and peace, um, babies or the inability to have babies, rain yeah. or snow or the withholding of everything came from the hand of God. And so these the wars that they undertook and the um, natural devastations that that took place um, they saw as, as the wrath of God as something mm. happening by the hand of God did it really um, I don't think so yeah yeah so I mean that, that's something that I also wanted to address because that that's a biggie for a lot of people who are critics of the Bible critics of the the Christian God the Old Testament God you know they'll say Look, God does whatever He wants. So He tells you to go kill and commit genocide. Go do it, you know. And yeah. and and if He wants to send someone to hell, He can. Why? Because He's God, and God can do whatever He wants, you know. Because supposedly the the their logic is, since God is God and God is love, and God can command you to do to do something that can appear evil in our eyes, it's still love because it comes from God. You know what I mean? So everything that God does yeah. is just and loving. So why? Why can't God sending someone to hell be just and loving in his eyes and we just have to plead mystery? Because I don't think God is illogical. Um, <laughs> and that kind of God is an irrational God um, who speaks out of both sides of his mouth, so to speak, and I mean his there. Yeah. Um, if God is love, and we see what justice is, we see what mercy is, and righteousness in Scripture. It's, it's loving others, taking care of them, providing protection and nurturing and sustenance and um, you know, taking care of widows and orphans, all the yeah. outcasts that we talked about before. And if God loves us so extravagantly that this love we read in Romans, um, I think it's uh, 8, nothing can separate us from this love right, of God, right. and Romans 13 too. Um, that this love is unfathomable, it's, it's beyond all we can even imagine, then that, if God has that kind of love, and I think God is that kind of love, then wiping out races of people, smashing babies' heads against rocks, right. uh, sending people to an eternal conscious torment for not even the snap of a fingers of a lifetime, um, is not love. God wouldn't want to do that if God is love. Mm -hmm. So God can do whatever God wants to. I'll agree with that. But the only thing God's going to want to do is something righteous and loving and restoratively just. Um, right, right. And these other things, I think, are, are human projections. We've right. made God in our own image and justify our actions right. because of it. So you're, you're kind of saying that <clears throat> the way the Bible has been written, uh, all the stories that we read of, of people claiming God did this, God did that, you know, it's it's more of just human beings who are just assuming <laughs> that yes. it's God on their side telling them to command, you know, to kill and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And um, yes. But let, let's go back to the whole idea of, because you talk about this God of forgiveness and, you know, even Hitler, you said, you know, doesn't yeah. even... God, God's love is even greater than, than what Hitler has done. But, you know, some people, some people who don't believe that they're going to hell, they say things like, I never killed anyone, so I'm not even a Hitler, so why should I go to hell? But then 
you know, there are those people who do argue for hell and say something like, well, it doesn't even matter how big or small your sin is. It's who you're sinning against, which is God that ultimately matters, which is why people deserve um, an infinite punishment. Because that, that's what I used to read in my apologetic books. Oh, yeah. You know, because it's like, oh, you don't have to be a Hitler. It's who you're sinning against. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, so a why, finite sin against the right. of God. Yeah. So how would you respond to, to that kind of argument? I would respond with God's forgiveness that there is no sin that God has not forgiven mm -hmm. because of God's deep desire that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Right. Um, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ we read in Romans. That God, even though we were the enemies, God was not our enemy, we were God's enemies. It was, we're the ones that need to um, reconcile. Mm -hmm. That even then, God reached out to fix it, to forgive it, to provide the way back home. Right, right. Um, and eventually, I think that even post-mortem, you know, we stand before God in that fire, um, that redemption will take place eventually for all creation. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I also just think about how when people do mention stuff like, you know, you're sinning against God, but then I, I also think about how, like, it doesn't make sense for me because we don't even do that in our own society. You know, right. like, like people aren't punished based upon the severity of of the crime, or they're based on the, upon the severity of the crime, and not necessarily who it was committed against. You know, so the right. punishment would fit the crime. Um, right. But you're talking about this post mortem deal where people have a chance still, which is like that di didn't make sense to me growing up for sure. I just thought it's this life. This is your choice. Even if you yeah. die when you're 13 years old, you had 13 years of choice. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know right. So, so what about when the Bible says it's appointed? For a person to die once and then face judgment so there's no such thing as a second chance after death well that verse doesn't say there's no such thing as a second chance it's appointed <laughs> for a person to die once which i think was refuting the eastern views of reincarnation possibly mm -hmm. which were very prevalent then in, in that area um and then the judgment and that judgment is otto's judgment and raising like i talk about in raising right where we're standing before God in the purifying fire that is God's all-consuming love and that wickedness is being burnt off and then um, we enter God's kingdom as fully righteous. Right, right. And so that verse actually supports my view of right, right. judgment. So it's interesting and just like our conversation, we see the words like, like wrath and judgment and and the words about hell it's really just a hermeneutical issue just how you interpret you know what's the context going on because when i hear the word judgment even now it sounds like a negative thing right, right? but then when you think about it judgments are not always bad <laughs> you know like he, no, made, there's, he made a yeah. good judgment <laughs> there's good judgments that's right yeah so I, people saying you have good judgment yeah. yeah so so this this really changes a lot of things for for people i believe you know um I well, think it makes the good news good news. Right. Makes We've it, been spending too much time preaching the bad news. Right, right. You know, but what would you say to someone who says, God, 
doesn't send anybody to hell then okay fine but god gave people free will so people send themselves there right yeah and you know i i still struggle with that because i i'm not a determinist right and i do think that as we stand finally before god with all of the you know people haven't become christians all of that wickedness burnt off and we're fully righteous the way god intended humans to be and we saw that in Jesus. I don't think a righteous person, even though they'd have the choice, I don't believe a righteous person would actually say no. Right, right. And then other people say, well, then that's not really a choice. No, it is a choice. Yeah. Because just because their wickedness is burnt, burnt off doesn't mean they don't have the choice. Right. But right. a fully righteous person standing in the presence of God will choose, will make a righteous choice. Right, right. No, I, I totally get that because, like, one of the things that, you know, when this argument would come up, they would just talk about how, you know, you, you, God won't violate your free will because love doesn't do that, right? It's not, right. God's not a rapist, they would say something like right. that. So, but then it is a, it's a powerful question when you think about it. Like, yeah, you, you can resist love, but can you really resist it forever? You know? Not if you're in a <laughs> fully righteous state. Right, and I'm just right. a Calvinist. I have students who, who, you know, accuse me of being a Calvinist, uh, my Calvinist, <laughs> which is, you know, I appreciate Calvin for some things, but I think some of the his view of God may be a little on the side of blasphemy. But right, right. Um, I still, I still have to hold to that freedom of choice. Sure. Now, you could say, all right, someone's fully righteous, standing before God, who has just walked through this into this the, this all-consuming love that in itself is a judgment, right? Yeah. You recognize your own sin when you're faced with such all-consuming love and righteousness um, that you could probably, I guess you could still say no. Right. But I can't imagine that somebody who's fully righteous would actually choose not to be reconciled to God. Right, right. No, I, I, I feel you. I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you're giving people the freedom to choose, but it just seems like in, in the way you see things, it seems unlikely that they would say no forever. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. I mean, they may say no until they're confronted, you know, face to fire. Right, right. With, right. Um, but then after all that wickedness, which would be what would make them say no, is burnt away, then, you know. Yeah. Could that happen? And even let's just say that they did that. A bunch of people did say no, and then hell, and and they're thrown into hell. And hell is thrown into the lake of fire that we told in Revelation. Well, the lake of fire itself is an annihilating fire. It's right, right. a brimstone fire, the same fire that was used. We see in um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, who even the people who threw them in were totally annihilated, and they didn't even get as far as the fire. Um, hmm. And so, at the very least, I would have to be an annihilationist. Right, um, right. But then you're but, another step, which is a universalist. I am a Christian yeah. universalist. There's Christian a big difference between universalist and Christian. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you know, I, I've I've heard even some people say that you know, some people, the people who are in hell, they they want to be there, you know, because if God would drag someone into heaven against their will, it would be hell for them. You know, and it's just so I've, I've heard a lot of these arguments and, and so, you know, 
to be honest, I actually used them myself <laughs> for many yeah. years when I would do Q and A's on on hell. You know, yeah, and I it, would too. It's crazy because you know I. Uh, I, I started understanding more about the love of God, you know, several years ago, but I, I still held on to hell though, because that's just like my default, you know, right. I, I didn't study stuff about the afterlife. So that was a part that was always hard for me to, to reconcile is this new understanding of God and the way I understand him, him now in this life. And then, mm-hmm. but my, my afterlife, it's the same from what, what I grew up, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you're going to yeah. be in hell forever <laughs> just because I you know, say right. no. <laughs> So that's why, you know, your, your books and um, just the interview that I found of you while I was in the Philippines was, it was instrumental for me, Sharon. So I, I really appreciate, you know, what you're doing, you know. So so what's next for you now? Next. Historical Jesus studies? No. No, I'm reading that for my own uh, okay. so-called edification. <laughs> education, actually. Because, okay. you know, you read all this stuff and you study it for years during grad school and then you forget it all. No, yeah, yeah. It's like the languages, right? I've got this whole list of languages I can read, but yeah. Unless you keep it up, you can't read them anymore. Right, um, right. But I am in the process of working on a. Uh, this is, sounds really boring, and it's not exactly what I want to be writing, but I have to write it at this. <laughs> point. Um, and that is a systematic theology, which is sort of a strange way of phrasing it. Um, mm. Structured according to the Apostles' Creed, yet based on a view of a nonviolent God or an anti-violent God. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, you're writing a systematic theology of that? I am. Is that going to be a, a pretty fat book or not, not too big? Well, it's, I need to keep it manageable so that right. students can read it in a semester. Oh, okay. Um, I've, I've, and it'll have, it won't be solely based on a nonviolent God, but that'll be probably the second half of each chapter I want to do the historical yeah. you know, views first so they get a, a wide range of views but okay um, so that's going to be a textbook for your class it'll be a eventually well yeah it's written f- I have to finish it pretty quickly it's right. it's for a popular audience again because I don't like writing for the academy I like writing for real people in churches oh, for sure yeah um, and so it'll be for pastors and laypersons um, who nice. want to do Bible studies, or uh, and for my students, I can't find a really, really great theological text out there that yeah. f- fulfills all of my needs and I think their needs. Right. Oh, right. by the way, mm. my students love your book. Oh, awesome! <laughs> so you thought you knew, you know. Oh, awesome! Thanks. That that was a big surprise when you told me. I was like, oh, because I've always, it's funny, but I've always dreamt like of being a professor one day and then like, uh-huh. oh, I would love to have my own book be the textbook for the class. And then I didn't become a professor. <laughs> so yeah. just hearing that another professor <clears throat> is using my book for the class, it was really, really encouraging, you know, so I hope. Yeah, they love it. They just, <laughs> the tone of voice and the it's fun and it's funny, but it's serious and <laughs> so they just love it. Awesome. Thank thank you so much. You know, uh, how can we keep in touch with you? Do you have a Facebook page? Or... I have a Facebook page okay. under Sharon Baker. Okay. Um, and I get a lot of friends that way that have just read books and want to friend me, so I friend Sure. People. Okay. Um, Is that the best way if people want to keep in touch with you and contact you? Well, Is contact me through my email. Um, my email... If they if they message me through Facebook, okay, you can then provide I'll all that. get 
Uh, yeah, mess private message in Facebook, and then I will respond. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. All right, so be sure to check out Sharon's books, Raising Hell and Executing God on Amazon.com. And if you'd like to support the show financially and help keep it going, it would really mean a lot. You can go to patreon.com slash Joshua Tongle. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Joshua Tongle. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Um, I'd really appreciate if you could take a moment to write a review and rate it on iTunes. It only takes like two minutes and it'll help uh, allow more people to discover the show and help us reach a wider audience, of course. And plus, it encourages me, too. So uh, please share this podcast with your friends. And so, Sharon, it's been fun. It's great to finally chat with you. And I uh, really appreciate you and what you're doing and just being part of my part of my journey. So thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks, Josh, and all that back at you. <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> all righty, guys, once again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you guys on the flip side. I'm out. Peace.